0: Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host Claire Campos-O'Neill as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot.
1: Hey everyone, it's Claire and Nicole here from Go Behind the Ballot. We have a really fascinating episode for y'all. We interviewed Dr. Annette Telly, who is the superintendent for Del Valley ISD. And I feel like we've talked a lot about Del Valley ISD on this podcast because that is the school district I'm connected to and that my son will be starting at this fall. So she was so generous sharing her time with us and speaking about how she got into education, her work as a superintendent, all the many, many hats she wears. She then shared with us about funding for public education and how the state impacts that, a little bit about accountability and just her passion for education, but specifically reading. And I kept thinking over and over, reading is fundamental, reading is fundamental. And it's so true. So Nicole, what were some of your quick takeaways? Well, she really
0: ties a lot of the pieces together of the conversations that we've had up to this point, right? She really touched on so many of the things that we have highlighted in separate episodes, right? She talked about the effect of charter schools on Del Valle ISD and any ISD for that matter. She talked about, like you said, the budget and how finance works. She talked about how teachers and superintendents can advocate for themselves and need to. She talked about accountability. It was just kind of, It felt like a great touch point of a lot of the things that we've been talking about and bringing it down to that super practical level and what it looks like Mm -hmm. for her. And she's so great too. I'm sure this is her teacher background, right? Because it's so extensive. She's so great at making things very clear and very simple. And she knows kind of that starting place and how to get you through each of the pieces that she's talking about so that it's really understandable. So yet another great interview and i have another person that i am fanning on i can fangirl on dr Tully all day
1: yes i loved it you made me think of something how we've talked to these folks like representative vicki goodwin dr audrey young who's at sboe candace hunter who's running for school board how they're in these decision maker positions but how she's like on the ground actually having to implement these decisions And the real impact and challenges she comes up against when they're just hard to work with because they have unintended consequences. That Uh, is going to bring up that phrase
0: that she used quite a bit, which I really appreciated that she's just trying to build awareness about those unintended consequences.
1: Yes. So check this one out. Let us know what you think. Here's Dr. Telly, We're super fans. Well, I guess what would help us to get into this Dr. Telly is if you could tell us a little bit about you and just what got you into education to begin with, what sparked your interest in that field? Yeah,
2: well, I was in college. I was not involved in education to begin with. I was in communications, that's where I started. And in the summers I would work at a childcare center and I fell in love with working with students. I felt that it came very naturally I felt that I was very creative with them and just had a knack with them. So that's what really made me change my major and go into education. And then from there, my university was able to partner with my child care center, and I was able to intern and actually act as the director in summers. So it was a great jumpstart into education. I yeah. became a third grade teacher. And during my first year of teaching, I graduated at 21 years old in May. I was a third grade teacher in August. And during one of my first parent-teacher conferences, I had a mom ask me what I was going to do for her son to teach him how to read. And I didn't know because I didn't learn that in college. So that prompted me to get my master's as a reading specialist because that was when I realized how important literacy is. And from there, I got my master's within three years and really embedded that into my instruction, became a reading specialist after about 10 years in the classroom, and I was a reading specialist for every grade level from first grade up until 10th grade, and it was probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done.
1: Yeah. I'm just curious to back up for a second, because I feel like a lot of folks that we've talked to who are in education they have families that are in education. Nicole, your parents are educators too, right?
0: Yes. My father was a teacher. My mom was a teacher, grandmother, aunt. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. What did your parents do, Dr. Telly? Did you do you have any education in your family? Any education backgrounds? I do not actually. I was a first generation college student.
2: Wow. My parents did not go to college. My mom worked in the cafeteria at my high school. My dad began mm-hmm. working on a loading dock for Tops Chewing Gum, Bazooka Joe baseball cards. And he worked his way up to be a director in that company. So I watched their work ethic. I think that was the biggest impact that they had on me was perseverance and work ethic. But no, I did not have any family members prior to me in education.
0: That's amazing. I also, Mm -hmm. you know how I love to jump in and share my little tidbits (laughs) that I just really relate to. So Dr. Telly, I think we mentioned right before we started that I started off in special ed. And- the really big reason why I moved from special ed to kindergarten was that I kept finding that with my kids, they had a real hole in their ability to read and I didn't know how to address it. And so that is why I wanted to move to kindergarten because I knew that I would learn the basics of how to teach literacy and also to do it explicitly, right? And versus kind of that whole language approach, I knew that that hadn't worked with the kids that I saw in special ed. So then I really turned my focus to how can I kind of self-educate about how to teach basic reading skills that I thought I would eventually turn back to special ed. I wound up not doing that, but that was my motivation actually for stepping out of special ed and into kindergarten. And then my other little thing is, my mom was a reading specialist and watching her get her masters and how she applied that has so many similarities to what you're talking about. And it was really fun to watch her go through that process. And also, of course, (laughs) call her up when I needed help. Like, what are the best resources? What should I be reading? So one of
2: the things that I really focus on as a superintendent is literacy. If you talk to anyone in my district, you'll know that literacy is a major priority here. And one of the things that I've noticed was that our teachers who are special education teachers did not have that type of diagnostic reading training. Neither did our interventionists for that matter. So we have put together a very robust training program so that both groups can get trained and including the special education teachers is going to be the first time that we've done that this coming school year. And that's very important for that reason.
0: Oh, I would have loved that back in the day so much. That speaks right to my heart.
1: So when it comes to, yeah, you're making me think, I don't even know how I would go about teaching a child how to read. When you're developing policy for your teachers, is that coming from the state or is the district creating that? It's a combination. So the state creates
2: the TEETS and they are the standards that every student needs to know by the end of that particular grade level. But what we do as a district is we develop a curriculum And I am very proud of the way that we develop our curriculum in Dell Valley ISD. I actually developed a book and we use that workbook to write curriculum. And it's not because I wrote the book that I believe in our process. It's because it really is an in-depth process. Every summer we start with our data. And I believe that this is why our district has made the gains that it has. We look at our data, we look at where the gaps are and we refine our curriculum to address those gaps. So if there's a particular area that we see, we're going to spiral that throughout the school year for that grade level. And then based on that scope and sequence that we build, in other words, when we look at where the gaps are and we build our curriculum on a timeline, then we create maps for the teachers Mm -hmm. and we have instructional strategies in our curriculum, what we do for all students, which we call tier one, what we do and what we provide for teachers who have students who are struggling in tier two. And then, what do we do for students who are far below grade level and receive tier three instruction? Because when you have all of those students in your classroom, you have to differentiate, and not all teachers know how to do that. You can't just send them out of the classroom. You have to be able to provide for them in the classroom. And then, with that, is Mm -hmm. what kind of adaptations do we make and modifications for our students with special needs, as well as our gifted and talented students? So, our curriculum is developed by our teachers for our teachers, with guidance from our curriculum team. And it does begin with what the state sets as standards, but we highly develop that to be very responsive to our district and our
1: students.
0: Mm -hmm. That sounds
1: so amazing. Yeah, what does that make you think of, Nicole? (laughs) Oh my gosh,
0: yeah, just like light bulbs going off of how amazing that process would have been, I think, when I was teaching. Something that I really loved that you said, so when I was actually teaching special ed was at the moment when inclusion was becoming kind of the standard practice instead of pull out, it was we were right in that transition. So I had my own classroom and kids came to me, but we were trying to really have inclusion be the model. And if that's not obvious for people who are listening, what that means is that there was a time in special ed when you sent kids out of the classroom to go get instruction from a special ed teacher. But of course, what we found, right, is that that really differentiates between kids. There's all sorts of challenges that that creates in the environment. And so the model became instead that kids stay as much as possible within their general ed population so Mm -hmm. that they're receiving the same services as everyone and that there's more differentiation that happens within the classroom. Maybe especially a teacher comes in and kind of supplements with that teacher, but that kids as much as possible stay in the classroom that was a real switch that happened. And so what you're talking about would have been so great because when I was teaching special ed, there was a lot of tension. Nobody kind of knew how to implement this new inclusion you know, model. And even though you can believe yeah. in it theoretically, and I definitely did, there was a lot of pushback sometimes from teachers because, and I too didn't really know how to guide or make that happen. So what you're talking about would have really smoothed that process and just made it incredible. So I love what you're doing.
2: Well, thank you. When I was a teacher, my second year of teaching, our special education director came to me and told me that she wanted me, this was in 1992, she wanted me to implement one of the first inclusion classrooms in third grade. They were doing it in every grade level, but I was selected as the third grade teacher. And I really loved it. I did receive a lot of training and I understood what that looked like. I planned very closely with my special education partner. I also had a paraprofessional who would come in when she couldn't be available. And I really understood how to differentiate within my classroom. And again, having 14 years of experience, 10 in the classroom and four as a reading specialist from first grade to high school. I do understand what teachers are facing. So, when they're saying to me, Well, you don't know what it feels like in the classroom, I spent as much time as a teacher as I have as an administrator. I've had 30 years in education and half was as a teacher. So, I do understand, and I do also understand the training component that we need to provide for teachers. In Del Valley, we started this year, Del Valley U, Del Valley University, and we have created a four year plan for all of our teachers. And each of our teachers has our core classes that they have to take, which include basic curriculum understanding and instructional strategies. And then we specify for whatever position they're in and what grade level and content they teach. So if you're a first grade teacher who teaches a bilingual dual language classroom, we have a four-year path for you. If you're a third grade teacher who's self-contained, we have a path for you. If you're a math teacher in eighth grade, we have a path for you. And it's for that reason, because I don't believe that universities necessarily prepare our teachers, nor do alt-cert programs for the challenges that come with public education and education
0: in
1: general. Mm -hmm. And I was an
0: alt-cert teacher, by the way. Yes, Mm -hmm. which is
1: alternative certification, right? That's
0: what that stands for. That's right.
1: That's right. Just for folks who don't know, and I have to remind myself.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, and an important thing to point out too, right, is that special ed is a high need area. And so, at least in Dallas, they were really eager, I guess, to welcome people to their alternative certification program who were willing to teach special ed, right? So, that also is a really interesting challenge, right? Because it's a very demanding job and it requires a lot of knowledge because it's the most litigious part of education, right? So, you really have to know what you're doing, understand your paperwork. Like there's just a lot that you're responsible for teaching being just a little portion, which is another reason why I wanted to move out of special ed is that I wanted to teach. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was really weighed down a lot by paperwork and meetings. But I think where, let me, I guess I have a point. I think I do, (laughs) right? Which is just that alternative certification, often special ed teachers fall in that category. And it's also one of the most I would say kind of rigorous positions, just I know they all are, but I just, there's a lot to learn maybe is what I, that is almost separate from teaching. That is very
2: true. There are a lot of components to special education and a lot of it is the legal components.
1: Yeah. Well, we're very excited that Del Valle has this additional training so that if you come into the school and you might not be as prepared as you need to be, y'all have a pathway to train people up. So that they do have confidence in the classroom and can be really effective with our students. So we love the work you're doing, Dr. Telly. And for those who don't know, I am part of Del Valle ISD. So you're my child superintendent, which is super exciting for me. You are so lucky. We love having you
2: as a part of our district. Yes,
1: it's a wonderful place. But I think that's a great segue into the role of superintendents. So can you tell us how you went from becoming a teacher and your path to become the superintendent and then just what superintendents do in Texas and what that role looks like?
2: Absolutely. So I started my career in Pennsylvania. Ironically, the first district that I taught in was Delaware Valley School District in Pennsylvania. And (laughs) I was there for 14 years. And when I moved to Texas in 2005, I began in Round Rock. And Mm. my position at that time was secondary reading specialist. So I worked with high school students who had difficulty reading and then from that position I became the reading coordinator to coordinate the secondary reading program and my passion for literacy is what propelled me to the superintendency and what I saw with a lot of our students in high school is they would drop out of school if they couldn't read and they would get involved in drugs and alcohol. And I'm not saying that that happens for every student who obviously can't read, but I did see that. And that broke my heart because I felt like we were failing them, that they did not have a chance if we did not provide them that opportunity to read. And as a high school student, if they don't have us, then who do they have? Mm -hmm. So from that, I wanted to train on reading strategies for secondary specifically at that point. And I got hired as a professional development director in Maynor Independent School District. Mm-hmm. And as professional development director, I developed the training program for all teachers from kinder through high school in all content areas. And I had a very strong niche in that area because of my experience teaching and was very successful with that. Became very interested in how to help teachers who were new teachers be able to actualize or execute strategies if they didn't have a mentor, if they didn't have professional development. And that was where I started to really research and study curriculum writing. I went to Mm -hmm. St. Louis and I studied curriculum writing in St. Louis. I went to Pennsylvania. I studied curriculum writing in Pennsylvania. And then I also studied curriculum writing here in Texas and began to develop a process that was very research-based, which is what I described earlier. And through that, moved up to assistant superintendent in both Kamal and Silverville ISD, deputy superintendent here in Belle Valley ISD, and then superintendent as I am now. And what I believe about the superintendency and leadership in general is that you have to know your craft deeply. So for as long as I was an assistant superintendent, I would consider myself an expert in curriculum instruction, literacy skills, and I would, and I still would go into any classroom to teach and co-teach with a teacher or to model teaching. I've done it for first grade. I've done it for fourth grade. I've done it for eighth grade here in the district as recent as last year, because I think it's important for our teachers to see us as leaders walking the walk and rolling our sleeves up. And I will not ever ask a teacher to do something that I either haven't done myself or have stepped into a classroom to see what that feels like. So the core of the superintendency really is the students and curriculum and instruction around the student. In the meantime, though, as an assistant superintendent, knowing that my path was to the superintendency, I really needed to learn deeply the Texas finance system, the purpose and process of developing a bond package and creating facilities based on that bond package, how to meet with architects and meet with architecture firms, excuse me, How to, with the finance system, be able to build a robust, sustainable budget and understand how to build raises in for teachers. The only way to be able to retain your staff is to offer a high quality culture and strong professional development with an accompanying salary. If they don't feel supported by either professional development or salaries, you're not going to be able to continue to recruit and retain. So, I personally will sit with our CFO and plan the budget, look at what we can afford, how we can afford it, project out five years to make sure we can sustain it. A lot of teachers and community members don't realize that when I'm looking at a budget, I'm not looking at what I could afford this year. I'm looking at what we could afford five years from now mm-hmm. because I have made a commitment to our teachers and staff that we will not riff our staff because we can't afford them because we've made a raise so high that we can't sustain it. So I needed to ensure that I trained myself and met with experts in facilities, construction, bond planning, finance, even right down to human resources and staffing, understanding the nuances of staffing and when to add a teacher and why that is so impactful when you add a teacher or don't add a teacher, what it does to the budget and what it does for the student experience. So there are about 10 different functions of a superintendent that people probably don't realize, which also include technology, maintenance, food service. I'm very close with our food service workers because my mom was a cafeteria worker. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes that's underestimated the impact that they have with students when they walk in. That's sometimes the first face they see in the morning. So the customer Mm -hmm. service kids get from food service. So a lot of people don't realize the amount of time that superintendents spend in every corner of the organization to make sure that it runs smoothly.
1: Yeah. It sounds like you wear a lot of hats. And I like when you talked about going to the classroom, it reminded me of Undercover Boss, how you're at all levels and understanding what's happening. So that, I mean, that sounds very necessary. And I love that you do that because how else do you know what's happening unless you have that personal firsthand experience? And I'm sure it changes year to year what they're going through.
2: It does, and I'll tell you, during COVID, when we were remote, I would walk into campuses and put my head in the office of registrars and say, so how are things going? How is it tracking attendance? And I found out it wasn't going well, and it was very cumbersome. And some of the the stipulations that the state put on us, having the registrars and the campuses actually do that was extremely difficult, and it wasn't very tight record keeping. I wouldn't have found that out unless I was going in and visiting with them. And we wound up having monthly meetings to solve those problems. So it's important for a superintendent to be visible, to Mm -hmm. be known, so that you have relationships with staff and they feel safe enough to tell you what's working and what isn't. And that they're willing to sit by you and problem solve and that they know that they can trust you to be there with them.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that you're very proactive and forward-thinking and have this long-term vision because when we don't do those things, you're going to have to solve these problems regardless, so why not solve them in the beginning and save yourself Definitely. some grief, put in the hard work, but it'll it'll run so much smoother. So, as you were speaking about the many hats that you wear, one thing you brought up was finance. So, I think if we could transition into finance a little bit. Sure. A big part of the state's budget is public education. Tell us what you think taxpayers need to know about the spending that happens in schools that they might not know and why it is so expensive, but why it's also so necessary to make sure we're investing in public education?
2: I think the first thing that taxpayers need to understand is that there are two buckets of money. And one is the bucket of money that comes from bond sales. And that's what you call interest in sinking. And that goes towards facilities and transportation, meaning buses and any type of construction. The reason I say that that's important for taxpayers to understand is sometimes when we pass a bond, the next question is, why can't we use that for teacher salaries or Mm -hmm. why can't we use that for supplies? You can't legally use those bond funds for anything other than what was in the bond package and specifically for anything related to construction and planning. So I think that's one misconception. And then the biggest, of course, is on the operation side. We do have a state budget. And that does come from taxpayer dollars, but the district does not set that tax rate. That is set by TEA and property values and appraisals. So we are told what the tax rate is from TEA on that side. And mm-hmm. what happens on that side is that if this is our cup and within this cup, this is the amount of finance allocated to Dell Valley ISD, we can't fill this cup more than this cup will hold. So if we gather this much money in taxes, the state with the funding they get, make up the remainder, or if we get this much money in taxes, the state will make up the remainder. So this cup ideally is always full. However, where this becomes problematic is if you receive taxpayer dollars above this, this goes back to the state and that's what's called recapture that you hear about. What people don't know about recapture is that that money goes back to the state and that doesn't necessarily get funneled back into education. And right now it's not getting funneled back into education. So when teachers are concerned about, we want raises and there's a 6% cost of living increase in Austin, how can you help us? We want to. And I tell our teachers all the time, we want to provide that increase. We know there's a cost of living increase, but we only have this much in our cup. And every year, this is all they give us. So unless the Mm -hmm. lawmakers start building in that cost of living increase into the allocation set by districts and start determining what to do with that recapture funding in a way that really gives back to the districts, we're going to be in a difficult situation. In Valley ISD, the reason that we were able to give a 7% raise increase, which I'm extremely proud of was by creative staffing. We had to remove a planning period from our secondary educators and add an early release day on Fridays for that planning time. So that was one of the ways that we were able to offer that. And of course that's a give and take, but I also think people may not understand why we did that. And the reason why we did that is we don't have additional funding coming from the state. And Mm -hmm. we had to look out, I had to look out five years ahead to make sure we could sustain that 7% raise. And we wouldn't have been able to sustain it without this creative planning. And Mm. I don't want three years from now to say to you on this podcast, well, we had to lay off 50 teachers because we gave a 7% increase and now we can't sustain it.
1: Okay. So if we want to change the model, that has to happen at the state level. That's correct. That has to, and this is the time for that to happen
2: because they are going into legislative season And we really need to advocate for that cost of living increase and a different type of funding. We have what's called average daily attendance. You'll hear superintendents talk about ADA, that's average daily attendance. So districts are to pick a period in the day when they take attendance. And based on that attendance, districts receive the funding for their students. So right now we're projected to have 11,500 students. So if this Cup is funded for 11,500 students. You would expect us to get all of that funding. Well, for every student who is absent, we will get less and less and less funding. So we aren't guaranteed the full amount. We're only guaranteed the full amount if 100% of the students attend 100% of the time. I think that's another misconception. You'll hear people say districts only care about the money. They want kids to come to school because of the money. Well, we build our budget on that money and on that funding. Mm -hmm. So when we don't have attendance, that impacts the way that we're able to fund our schools. So what's unfortunate is with COVID, we had students who missed a lot of time. They were ill. They had family members who were ill. Even during flu season, you have some students, especially on the east side, who are asthmatic. We have more health issues on our side because there's a dearth of health care. So our students, unfortunately, miss more school. And that is a direct correlation to not having the health care services, thankfully more are coming, but that is a direct correlation to funding Then that we receive. So the mm-hmm. district is being penalized for parents taking care of their students and keeping them home when they're ill. And that is the flaunt and the formula structure right. of funding.
0: Well, and Claire, do you remember when we spoke to Representative Goodwin, she wants this to change. I know that she is really invested in building in a cost of living increase that is just a part of the legislation so that it doesn't have to be re-debated every session. That's just something that is automatically included in the budget. I mean, I think that would help a little, right? It sounds like this is a multiple front issue, but at least, you know, there would be that little bit of relief.
2: And the funding mm-hmm. that the state is getting back from recapture if that was put back into the schools for cost of living increases, it isn't. It isn't being put back into the schools.
0: That's another thing she pointed out that she wants to see change.
2: Yes. And that would help the structure of funding for Texas schools. There is an inequity and inequity, and that's where the inequity is coming from.
1: Yeah. This makes me think of a lot of things, but I'll take this route. So when you're talking about student enrollment, in attendance, it makes me think of our conversation we had with Patty Everett about charter schools. And she was talking about how when charter schools open in neighborhoods, they're pulling kids from different schools and you're having a lot of stranded costs in the local ISDs. So can you talk to us about the impact charter schools are having on districts around Texas and the way that is impacting the budgets that are there?
2: Yes. And before I go into that specifically, I do want to talk about some of the misconceptions about charter schools. So, a lot of times charter schools will very aggressively market to our families. They will do an open records request for the students in our district, send flyers or call the families directly and tell them all that they are offering in a charter school. What they don't tell them is if there's a behavioral problem, the students no longer attend the charter school, they're not allowed to continue, they come back to public school. Students in special education where they can't support their needs come back to public school. Students who are second language learners, when they don't have that bilingual education, they come back to public schools. So public schools do not have that autonomy to say, we're selecting these students, but we're not going to allow these students in. So that's one misconception. The other is we offer music, art, all the fine arts is in high school, like dance and band and we're implementing orchestra. So it's a very well-rounded education in public schools that charter schools just do not have the capacity to offer, as well as the very robust CTE program. Sometime I'd love to come back and talk about our CTE program, but our elementary school- Dr. Telly,
0: will you just tell us what CTE stands for?
2: Sure. Career and Technical Education. Okay, great. Yes, Career and Technical Education. And we have an actual building that is a completely hands-on lab for Everything from welding construction and healthcare to auto mechanics and graphic design. So there are things that we can offer in a public school and do offer that charter schools do not. Our elementary schools, Smith Elementary School, which has five charter schools around it, outperformed all five. They are an A campus in a district, Del Valley ISD, which is a B district. We're outperforming charter schools. So the way that charter schools negatively impact districts is what I just said. We plan our budget based on enrollment, and we base our enrollment on projections. We have a demographer study the area, and all school districts do this. We have demographers study our area and study projected growth. This is how we determine when to go out for a bond, how much to set the bond for, which schools we need to build, where the growth is so that we can build schools in the right areas. This is how we build our budget. You get a certain amount of funding for every student that comes, like I just explained, when we build our budget for 11,500 students, but a charter school markets to 500 of them, well, now every student, the state provides funding of $6,100, actually $6,150 per student. So you take that funding away from the district whatever 6,100 is, times 500, then that funding will follow the students and not filter into the school districts. So one, we're not going to be able to maintain our budget because Mm. right off the bat, we're not getting as much funding. Two, we're building campuses for students who will no longer be attending those campuses. And three, the parents have misinformation about what the charters will be providing, and they really won't provide all that they promise, all that glitters is not gold, right? And I've had teachers and parents who have been in charter schools return to us this year and say what Dell Valley offers is above and beyond anything they've had in charter schools and their kids weren't happy. But you wouldn't yeah. know that unless you actually compared apples to apples.
1: Yeah, something that Patty was telling us was some of these schools don't have nurses or libraries and these things you would assume would be there because that's what local ISD's have, but you don't think to ask that because it's the best comparison I can think of is like if I go to a restaurant and I'm like, "Where's the bathroom?" and they're like, "There's no bathroom." I'm like, what? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of assume that would be there. <laughs> Several weeks ago,
2: one of my board members and two of my curriculum team members testified in, sped- in front of the State Board of Education because there were two charter schools that were coming to Del Valley. And we testified, they testified on behalf of Del Valley ISD and the State Board of Education voted against those two charter schools from coming based on their compelling testimony. They had a superintendent who had never been a teacher and was not familiar with education. The State Board of Education recognized that not having that level of expertise, like I just shared with you, I can't imagine not having my background trying to perform this job. It's hard enough when you have the background, let alone not having that background. And making sure that you understand deeply what your students need, I think that speaks volumes. I have to give the State Board of Education a lot of credit. And I think that exemplifies that when the community is informed truly about charter schools versus public schools, they make the right choice. There's just misinformation out there. Mm -hmm. That's
0: such a great point because another thing that came up in that conversation we had with Patty Everett was the public relations component that you touched on, right? the all that glitters is not gold metaphor is so perfect because we were talking about the challenges that local ISDs face, which is if you had a huge PR budget, can you imagine the blowback you would get for that? right? But everybody just assumes that charter schools are offering the same set of what we might consider sort of basic services that your local ISD provides So you don't think to ask the charter school those specific questions. And so then, yeah, here you wind up in this place that you think is going to be the most amazing and transformative only to learn all the things that you didn't know until you were a part of it. But yeah, if you've got a huge PR budget, you just sort of sweep that under the rug. Nobody needs to know those things. Right.
2: And they talk a lot about 100% of their students being accepted into college. Well, that's because they have all of their students apply to ACC. So when they all get accepted to ACC, you can say 100% of their students are accepted into college. In Del Valley ISC, I would rather determine that I have 20 students who are in our career and technical education program and our auto tech program. They received a certification as an auto technician and they're getting hired, which they did this year by BMW of Austin, by the city of Austin. So right out of high school, they're going into the workforce. That's more important to me than them getting accepted into a uh, two-year college that they're not going to go to. My I students the chills when you said that. That <laughs> it's was true. My, yeah. my students who do get accepted, I want them to go and I want them to get a great experience. But just because they're not going to a university, that doesn't mean that they're not entering a very valuable career.
0: Well, especially, we know, the workforce challenges right now. I mean, come on, we have got to really change that mindset of what is valued and valuable as a society. And so absolutely, (laughs) we've got to emphasize exactly what you're talking about, creating a workforce that is actually what we need.
1: I have one more question regarding funding. So I have a son who's going to be starting preschool. Very excited about that. Talk to us about preschool funding. Is that fully funded by the state? Great question. How does that work? (laughs) That's a great question because that's another misconception
2: of how districts are funded. Students who attend a school district, again, as I said, districts receive $6,150 per child. Well for a pre-kindergarten student, they receive half of that funding. So half ADA is what we call it. And that's because pre-K used to be a half-day program. So the state would fund us for a half-day program. Well, when the state required, which I 100% supported and I testified for it, when the state mandated the full-day pre-K, they didn't increase that funding allotment. So the districts had to make up that other half of funding, which it's worth it, but eventually you can't get blood from a stone. So where are we going to get the additional funding? And we were subsidizing that. However, pre-K is only open to students who qualify. Students who qualify means that they're either on free and reduced lunch, they are a second language learner, English is not their first language, their parents are active military, they're in foster care, have been in foster care, or they're homeless. Now, what I have to think, and I want to really give a shout out to the city of Austin and Travis County, they have partnered with Valley to pay for all students in Valley ISD to attend full-day pre-K. So... It doesn't matter if you qualify or you don't qualify. I was just speaking to a gentleman this morning who was surprised to find out that his child did not need to qualify. And next year when she turns four, she can come to Valley ISD, which is something else that we offer in our district. But that is in partnership with the city and the county.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm so thankful that as a parent. My son, I have two kids in daycare and we spend over $2,000 for the both of Mm -hmm. them. I mean, we have the money, we can pay it. But if that was taken out, if we didn't have to allocate that for our budget, we could put our money towards other things. And we're doing all right. I mean, I just think about families that are really struggling. And honestly, I think we should have more subsidies for earlier than just four-year-olds. But it's such a blessing that the city of Boston and Travis County prioritize that because it has such a great... I think, upward spiral for families. So I hope that we continue prioritizing this. And the state provides money too down the road. That would be great.
2: The state really does need to prioritize that because we know that when students enter pre-K, when they go to third grade and we test students who attended pre-K and compare them to their same age peers, they outperform their same age peers who did not attend pre-K. They're getting all of those early literacy skills, which I am so passionate about, and that's helping them be able to create the foundation that they need. A statistic that people don't know is that if kids are not reading on grade level by the end of third grade, there's a 25% chance they'll be a non-reader for life. So it's critical that by the Mm -hmm. end of first grade, we have kids reading on grade level. If they're not reading on grade level by the end of third grade, there's a 50% chance they'll be a non-reader. And if they're not reading on grade level by fifth grade, there's a 75% chance they'll be a non-reader for life. So wow. my passion for literacy is well-founded in research, and yes. that is really what my concern is.
1: I just keep thinking, reading is fundamental. I mean, for it everything. <laughs> it it's is. true. And such a wise investment. I mean, mm. 3,000 extra dollars, and think of how we'll save in societally down the road by just making that early investment. I'm convinced.
0: Well, yeah, right. I'm in we charged. can all testify together. We can <laughs> exactly. all testify together this legislative session. We're the choir that doesn't need to be preached to, but we will certainly <laughs> send that out to others, right? Totally converted, total believers, 100%. But I remember too, another conversation I'm making so many connections when Dr. Young talked about the bus issue, I think in her district, mm-hmm. right? Which was a requirement by the state that buses had to have seat belts, but they didn't fund it. Right. So for some districts, the burden of that was unbearable and they adjusted the legislation just a bit to kind of grandfather in some things. But anyway, I guess the point I'm making is I find it really strange and I would not have known this without these conversations that the state can mandate things and not fund them (laughs) and then just sort of say. There are
2: many unfunded mandates. And the interesting piece is that with these unfunded mandates, it's not that we don't believe in these mandates. I believe in full-day pre-K wholeheartedly, but I also believe that it should be funded. And if you're going to mandate it, why, that tells me you believe in it, why wouldn't it be funded? And then the other piece is we offer dual language in our pre-K program, and that is helping us become a global society. We have a mission and a vision in our district that our students will be biliterate, both Spanish speakers and English speakers. We want our Spanish-speaking students to retain their home language. We don't want them to be immersed in English so they lose that home language. And we want our English speaking students to be exposed to the culture and language of the Spanish culture because it's important for them as they grow up to be able to be bilingual and then also to understand the culture of the state they live in.
1: I love that so much. My son's gonna be in the dual language program, but I think of these parents who say, oh, my kids aren't challenged. I'm like, put them into a language. I can't imagine it would be more challenging, but also so enriching for them and beneficial and the way your brain, it's so malleable and such a great opportunity to start early. I wish I had had that as a child because my mother was a native Spanish speaker. She spoke Spanish in the home and learned English in school. And she tried to teach me when I was young, but we were living in Georgia. We weren't around a Mexican community. And I was just like, mom, I don't understand what you're saying. I was so dismissive. But if I had been in a different culture, where Spanish was normalized and heard. I'm sad I missed it, but I'm so glad I can give that to my son now.
2: And we want to instill that pride in our students, the pride of their culture, a the pride of their language, and they deserve to be proud. And it's a shame that you're in an environment where you couldn't be proud of that because that is something to be proud of. I have a lot of students who sometimes will say, Miss, I'm not smart, I can't read in English, or I have a hard time reading and speaking in English. And I'll say to them, you speak two languages don't say that you're not smart. You're smarter than anyone else around you. You have that ability. And it's also about helping our kids learn to believe in themselves. So I really believe that
0: this is a priority that we need to have for our students.
1: Nicole, do you have Uh, a just,
0: Just like I could bathe in all of this. It just really warms my heart. And it's just so needed, right? It just is... So needed. So no, I'm just, I don't have any particular insights. I'm just grateful. have a quick
2: anecdotal story, a little story. So I was talking to a mom recently and she said that they were sitting in Tex-Mex, Mexican restaurants and their little five year old was sitting there and started ordering in Spanish and talking to the waitress. And she had no idea because the child doesn't necessarily engage at home in Spanish because nobody could speak Spanish. But when she heard her child just talking with the waitress and ordering in Spanish, she just thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So there are some cute stories that come out of the program as well, as well as it being fundamental and necessary. It also is just pleasurable and rewarding to watch the kids blossom. Uh. Awesome.
1: Absolutely. So good. I love it. I'm also hoping as Cole, you know, starts in this dual language program that it'll help. I do my Duolingo. I try it. I've been taking Spanish classes, but I'm excited to do this alongside with him and it'll be great. We can speak with each other and hopefully it'll help my brain get back in gear. Well, so it will be can... good
0: for Connor to hear, right? You're younger. Yeah. He'll just oh, hear that. Yes. And have a base.
1: Yay. So it's going to help all of us. So I think this would be a good place talking about reading and English as a second language to talk about testing and accountability. So right now, well, maybe you could tell us, I'll preface it a little bit, but the way that we keep schools accountable in Texas is through the STAR test primarily and our A through F rating system. Can you talk to us a little bit about the accountability system we currently have in place?
2: Yes. So the accountability system that we currently have in place is based on three domains and the first domain is straight academic performance. The second domain is based on growth and then the third domain is based on how many students in each of your student populations meet domain one and domain two. And this is interesting because in that third domain in districts like Del Valley, we have a very high percentage of students in those student populations from all ethnicities to second language learners and even special education. And district is rated by how well each of those student populations perform in each of the content areas by grade level. Now, when you look at a district that doesn't have that type of diversity and they're getting rated on domain three, sometimes they don't have enough in the student population for that domain to even count. And if you underperform or fail in that domain, If you collectively take the accumulation and the cumulative score of domains one, two, and three, and the district passes, if you fail that last domain, you still will fail even if collectively your composite score is meeting the standard. So I think that's something that people don't know. And also in domain one, students who meet masters receive three points, students who reach the meets level, which is in fact on grade level, receive two points and students who are approaching grade level, which is passing, receive one point. And I think what's interesting about that is I believe all students should be at the meets and masters level, but there also is a philosophical debate here because if you have a campus of 100 students and 100 of them pass and you have 100 points, well, then you're going to be a D because you didn't get enough points to be an A or a B. If you're a campus and half of your students reach master's, that's three times 50 or 150, and half of your students fail and get zero, then Mm -hmm. you're still going to have 150 points and you could be a high C or a B. So the priority isn't on all students, Mm -hmm. it's on the students and meets and masters. And again, Mm -hmm. I believe that all students should have high expectations, and I believe that all students should hit that meets and masters level. But it also is interesting that when you have a district where, like ours, we have a lot of mobility, we can't control where students are moving in and out, of. we do have students of poverty, our goal is we want to have them pass as well as move to the masters level. But if they're below the approaches level, the first thing we have to do is get them to approaches before we could get them to meets and masters. And they shouldn't be penalized for that. If they pass, I understand that we want to get them to masters. But again, there is a discrepancy for having a whole entire campus pass versus half of the campus pass and the other half fail because the first half is achieving that high level. Meaning if the other half is of poverty, then the campus could still outperform other campuses. Yeah.
0: Such an interesting point. I also feel like my brain is kind of gonna explode. <laughs> like I feel like I'll a lot have of to information. Listen to this section a few times. I think you explained it beautifully and really broke it down, but my goodness, it is complicated. But I really like your emphasis on just pointing out kind of how the what I'm gonna call a formula works in terms of like how do we compare a campus where everyone is has passed versus when we're maybe half haven't and half are at the exceeds, like, how are we, that comparison feels unfair.
2: And I want to have positive intent all the time. I do believe that some of these are unintended consequences, but they're unintended consequences that have to be pointed out because they do disproportionately impact campuses that have high poverty.
1: And when they're getting the master's meets level passing, that's from the STAR test, right? that they're that's receiving? Correct.
2: Okay. That's correct. That's correct. The okay. accountability system. That's correct.
1: Okay. And can you tell us about, okay, so the, my understanding is that the star chest is going through some changes right now and they're trying to move the test to fully online, I think. One, is that correct? And two, what are the benefits advantages and disadvantages of doing that? And if I may, I would like to point out one other thing about the current system before oh, yes. I go into
2: online. At the high school level, something that I do think is very beneficial is our campuses get credit for what's called college career and military readiness. So the number of students who receive certifications, the number of students who pass SAT, ACT, and what is equivalent of college readiness for dual credit courses. They also get credit for entering the military. Well, this year, the military hasn't been reporting back to TEA the numbers of students enrolled in military. That could adversely affect our high school campus rating because Mm. we do have a large population of students, again, in a district, a military district. Del Valle is historically a military district, and in a district where many of our students go into the military, if we're not receiving recognition for that, that will adversely impact the high school. And I just think that that's Mm. important to point out because, again, unintended consequences, you think, well, they're just not going to count military, but that disproportionately impacts districts where you have a high number of students entering the military.
1: Why is that the case? Why aren't they reporting to the state? We don't know exactly
2: why the military, I don't know if it's confidentiality reasons, so we're not exactly sure why, but there does need to be an adjustment. And I know that one of the arguments from TEA is that, well, it's apples to apples because no one is having military count. So it shouldn't matter, but it does matter if you have a district where a large number of students go into the military and you have a district where they don't. So again, unintended consequences that I did want to take an opportunity to point out. So back to your question about online testing. Yes, the state is going to 100% online testing this year, and there are challenges with that for us and other districts, What we will tell you is that when we have had all online testing. There are times when the state mandates full online testing and our special education students take online testing. When all of the districts have their students online, the system crashes and we will need to get our technicians involved. We wind up calling the technical education at TEA. Sometimes our students can get on later in the day. Sometimes they can get back on the next day. Sometimes they get kicked off again. But when you're talking about your most fragile students, special education students, students with special needs, and they're trying to engage and concentrate and they keep getting kicked off, that doesn't keep that stamina going, it breaks that down. So that's been a challenge and that's something that we're worried about, the connectivity. The other thing that I'm worried about is a lot of research that I've done and also observed in my own district, our students in Dell Valley ISD, do better on paper than online. And again, I'm making a very factual statement of our students in Bell Valley ISD. I have data that I can show you and send to you. And it's a very, very large difference. As a matter of fact, our students who took the algebra test online this year, 92% failed. Our students who took the test on paper pulled the scores up so much that the high school campus right now is tentatively going to be rated a B. So that online component would have really hurt us if all of our students had taken the test online. Now the research that I've done shows that students do perform more poorly online by 11 months as if they had not received 11 months of instruction in math and reading. The research also shows that students of minority populations perform more poorly online. It even suggests that girls perform more poorly online It talks a lot about students' accessibility. Now, our students do all have access to technology, but students who grew up with technology at home and are always on the computer, they tend to perform better, but it even states that when you prepare a data set of students online versus students on paper, students do better on paper. And that is a concern of mine. And I am not suggesting that we stay with paper. I know that there is a lot of push to move with the times, move with the technology. But on one hand, we're hearing the state say that virtual learning didn't work and that the students need to be in person, which I agree with. But then why does that mean that they can test online? If learning wasn't as successful remotely, then why is testing going to be successful? Many of the strategies we teach students, manipulatives that our younger students are allowed to use for math, the reading strategies that we teach them to chunk and draw lines and circle, that can't be done online. And when it can be, it does become a distraction because the voice may talk or the color may pop up, but it is very distracting. And I have interviewed my own students and they prefer to take it on paper.
1: I would think of myself right now, like for our interview, I printed out the questions. I typed them online, but I, like, I have all these notes that I wrote. Like I always
0: prefer <laughs> to write rather than type. I mean, eventually I like to type, but I like to start with handwriting. Like That is how I get my first best ideas so I can understand that connection for sure.
2: And I will say that proponents of online testing will say that our students are digital natives and it's easier for them but I can tell you that that is not the case for our students. When given a choice to take the test online or on paper, they prefer to take it on paper. And when we have Mm -hmm. looked at the scores for students on our own tests, they have differed by at least 30 points in many cases. And that's a lot. Also, again, I'm not suggesting for us to necessarily go all on paper, but wouldn't it be a good idea for the state to allow a star placement committee To determine if a student will do better on paper or online. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: again, the people who oppose that will say, well, that's not apples to apples. If some students are taking it on paper and some taking it online, then you aren't comparing apples to apples. Well, then you just made my point. (laughs) Because if they can perform as well on both, then it shouldn't matter. They should be able to perform as well on both.
0: Right. If the right. goal, right, is to measure performance, then how the performance happens isn't the issue.
2: Because I believe that they perform yeah. better online. I ran, sorry, not online. On I pre- paper, I but not yeah. only believe that I see it factually and mm-hmm. right, based on data. When you have a student taking that assessment on paper, they perform better. But what I'm suggesting is that if our opponents were to say, "Well, that's not equitable," You can't compare apples to apples. What I'm saying is they've made my point then.
1: Yes. This is making me think of a podcast I heard. I'm going to try to find it so we can put it in the show description that said cognitively, it is a different experience writing your notes than typing them. Something happens in like the brain to hand process. I'm going to try to find it because it was fascinating. But
2: I can tell you what it is. It's the neurological impress method. And that means that when you see it, say it and do it and hear it at the same time, it impresses that information on your brain. And the kinesthetic process of writing connects that process into your brain. And what I have researched, and again, in my years of practice, it's always associated with like hitting the save button on the computer. When you're Mm. able to write it, that kinesthetic process, it impresses it on your brain.
1: That's very wonderful. Of course, you know, Dr. Telly, you're so (laughs) well-researched. I just like listen to podcasts and I'm like, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. But there's research behind what you're hearing. It's true. It's really true. Mm -hmm. So our last little section, and then we'll move on to the last part of our interview. So you talked about the need to advocate, how we, there's obviously things that you have strong opinions about that are positive for students and families. How do we advocate for the things we believe in, in public education?
2: Well, August 9th at the Capitol, there is a House Committee on Public Education discussing star testing. So that would be an opportunity for those who support any beliefs about testing truly, to be able to go and share their thoughts and testify at the Capitol on August 9th. But that is truly how to get involved, to follow what legislation is being passed, keep yourselves informed, go to the Capitol during the legislative session, listen to the testimony. I can tell you that I am on the Texas Virtual Commission for Education, and they do listen. The legislators listen. When you have individuals who come informed with facts and data, they listen. And I think it's important for legislators to know about some of the unintended consequences. I recognize in meeting with many of the legislators that they do want what's best for the kids and don't know what some of the unintended consequences are. And when you can go out and point that out to them, and especially hearing from parents, I think that's especially important.
1: With this podcast, we're hoping to obviously connect with a lot of listeners, but also give them tools so that if they want to go beyond just listening and take action, we can suggest things that they do, like testify, write letters, written testimony, and share their experience. And we're hopeful that our representatives do receive that and perhaps change their minds or has an impact on policy. Yeah, we try. And
2: any parent groups that you know of that would be willing to hear myself speak or some of my colleagues, I think that that's always important, too, to help inform the community, because as you shared today, there's a lot of misinformation and it's important to get the facts out to the community. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. So, Nicole, should we move to our last fun little section?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. We didn't prepare you, but we'll do it
1: now. So to wrap up, what we like to do is something called our attention mentions, where you mentioned something that has your attention this week over the last couple of days, whether it's like a show or an article you read, a podcast, maybe a experience. So, yeah, we like to do that to wrap up. Nicole, myself, and our lovely guest. Well,
2: I think one of the most exciting things that I've done in the first few days is take our teachers from Smith Elementary School on a walkthrough of their brand new campus and the ribbon cutting is this Friday at 9 a.m. and we walked together last Thursday we walked in together it was their first time seeing the campus we walked in with the principal and all the teachers and They got to see the brand new building for the first time. They got to go to their classrooms. There were murals that were painted by parents in the old building that we were able to replicate and surprise the teachers and have those restored on the library walls. The campus is just a beautiful campus. There's a lot of tactile opportunities for the kids even when they're walking down the hall. And I think it is just something that was extremely exciting for me to see and i always tell our teachers that everything that we do for our kids matters the way we dress the way we show up letting the kids see that we value them the facilities that we have if the facilities aren't painted or run down the kids walk in feeling like they don't matter when you provide them a brand new building they walk in and they realize that they're valued even at two of our older campuses Beatty elementary school and hillcrest elementary school Last year, we renovated the facade of Beatty Elementary, and our teachers and students were just excited. They walk in, they feel valued. This year, we did the same thing for Hillcrest because it's important to me as a superintendent that every campus students feel valued when they walk in, whether it's a brand new campus or a campus that's been here for 50 years. So that was something that was super exciting. And the first day of school is
1: also on August 9th,
2: and I'm excited to welcome all of our kids back.
1: I love that. I completely agree. I think the environment you in absolutely affects your performance. And I think about form over function, but how the form matters for how well you're going to function. It does. So, it does. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to go to the groundbreaking. So I can't wait to you check that to out come. too. Yes. Nicole, <laughs> you can make it too. You need to join us. On, I guys. think I need to. Yeah.
0: <laughs> this is just is so sweet. I love it.
1: So the thing I will mention, and Nicole might laugh, is an app. If you are a podcast listener like myself, Uh I know what you're going to say.
0: She's obsessed.
1: Yeah, I'm obsessed with Stitcher, the Stitcher app. That is the best way to listen to podcasts. Whenever we have podcast friends that say, I have a podcast and they're not on Stitcher. I'm like, you're dead to me. You have to be on Stitcher because it's just such a great easy. (laughs) It's so functional. I love the way that it's laid out. It's designed for podcast listeners like heavy. I listen to like two hours of podcasts a day. I listen to so much. So Stitcher, I love you. Maybe sponsor us one day. You're the best.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And she's not kidding when she says that's always her first question to people. Are you on Stitcher?
1: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we're going to be on all the channels like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but Stitcher is my preferred.
0: So funny. Your little obsession.
1: Okay. (laughs) What
0: is catching my attention right now? Oh my gosh. Last night I did a deep dive. Well, I'll tell you what, actually, they have uploaded a lot of Lifetime movies to YouTube. And So it is really interesting to explore some of the titles that they have. So I started watching Stock at 17, which I can't, you know, the quality is, it is fun to watch. (laughs) I'll say that. So I guess that's what's catching my attention. The Lifetime movies that are now available on YouTube. If you just want a like really melodramatic thing to watch, it will satisfy (laughs) that itch. So.
1: Yeah, it sounds good to have on in the background. You're folding laundry or with <laughs> <doing> whatever. <laughs> yes,
0: yes, you can always count on a dramatic moment. Like they are full of that, so it's not nice. like my real life. And maybe that's why I enjoy it. It's that you can just watch it on a screen.
1: I love it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Telly, for your time. We really appreciate it and learning more about superintendents do. And we're so thankful for all of your hard work as a superintendent because it's a very important role and it's not easy. And we're so thankful that you are committed.
0: Oh my gosh, Valley.
1: so it gives me so much
0: faith in where we are in public education to know that people like you are serving in this role. It's incredible.
2: Well, thank you. I was very honored to be part of this, this morning. So thank you for the time and for allowing me to be on this morning.
0: Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host Claire Campos-O'Neill on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com, where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.